guys. This is Dr. Vita Bland. We thank you for taking time to listen to It's a Matter of Your Health, the 30-Minute Health Magazine. Our guest today is Dr. Shauna Nesbitt. Dr. Nesbitt is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas and Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, where she is also the medical director of the Hypertension Clinic at Parkland Hospital. Now, if you think that's not enough, she is also the inaugural vice president and chief institutional opportunity officer. Dr. Nesbitt, I'm surprised you had time to get us in, but we're so happy to talk with you. Oh, Dr. Bland, I am so happy to be a part of this program, and I thank you for inviting me to do it. I would always find time to do this because this is close to my heart. Well, thank you so much because we are just honored to have you. Dr. Nesbitt has done some of the pivotal studies in hypertension, and she is a world-renowned authority on hypertension. So we are definitely in for a treat today. So Dr. Nesbitt, what's going on in the world of hypertension? What's going on with these new guidelines? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we have to jazz it up and keep it fresh. You know, uh, over the last 40 years, 40, 50 years, we have always thought of hypertension as being um, uh, the way that, you know, the, the, the pathway that leads us to strokes and heart attacks and that that happens when the blood pressure is extraordinarily high. The problem is when we wait to that extreme, we've missed the opportunity to actually intervene when it counts, when we can actually change that trajectory, not have you on your way to the dialysis unit or to the stroke unit, but have you on the street doing what you'd love to do. So we roll back those guidelines of thinking that we should front end load our treatment, which is why we've made major changes to the goals of blood pressure um, achievement of being under control because the lower we get you earlier, the better chance we have to keep you out of dialysis, out of stroke range, and out of um, the cardiac care unit for heart failure or a heart attack. That's that the big fabulous. news. Mm-hmm. That is fabulous. I think, it, it, you know, I think we should have done that a long time ago, but yeah. that is just absolutely fabulous. So, you know, I talk to people all the time and they tell me, you know, I thought my blood pressure should be my age plus 100. Oh, no. Oh, my. So. <laughs> that was what we thought when Franklin Roosevelt was alive. And God bless him. He had a, a terrible stroke. But the idea is here that what we understand now is that tighter blood pressure control is better for all of us, not for some of us. And it has no, um, realistically, it does not have a tie to your age. It is appropriate to have your blood pressure under control if you are 80 or if you are 50 or if you are 25. Um, Of course, there are special circumstances where we have to carefully think about it, which is what your doctor's there to do when you have other conditions. But in general, we all should be striving for really the same level of blood pressure control, which is, um, you know, ideally, we want to be less than 120 over 80. But if you have hypertension and you're being treated, our goal is 130 over 80. 130 on top, 80 on the bottom. That's great. May I ask what percentage of patients do we really get their blood pressures down? Yeah, it's a challenge. And so um, 
with the old guidelines, we had gotten there to in about 50% of individuals. With the new guidelines, of course, as you go lower, you'll have a lower percentage. So we're right at around 40% nationally, but 30%. African-Americans are um, more likely to have higher blood pressures and uh, not as likely to have as good control. And so the percentage of blood blacks with blood pressures under that range is somewhere around 30 to 40%, depending on your age and also depending on gender, men being less likely to be controlled than women. Okay. Why do you think men are less likely to be controlled just because they don't go to the doctor or, you know, you know what? <laughs> yeah. You know what? That That is absolutely true. There, there are a couple things about it. One is um, if you think about just the um, biologic differences between men and women is that there is some increased risk that men have that is um, partially related to the hormonal differences between men and women. And and that is absolutely true that they tend to have heart disease at earlier ages than do women. Um, in fact, you might think of it uh, the other way is that women have the protection of estrogen that men do not have. On the other hand, the larger issue here is how men live and how they interact with healthcare providers. In Dallas, we did a study a long time ago looking at, um, in our black African-American community, what was the practice of utilizing healthcare? And what we found is that black men were the least likely to have a doctor. They were more likely to have a barber than they were to have a doctor. In fact, their relationship with their doctor, um, the, with their barber was about 12 years. Their relationship with the doctor may be non-existent or maybe one or two years. And that I think is very telling. And so, you know, hypertension doesn't give you any symptoms. So you're not going to know if you don't have a doctor of your own that you're actually following with. Um, so I think changing the dynamic of relationship is important. And it is also important that, you know, we think of our health care as being as important as our hair and that, you know, maybe we need to have a blood pressure check sometimes in the barbershop or the hair shop, you know, some other places because it matters to us in the end. That is so important. And I know that was uh, some studies that looked at that and they did that exactly getting their, you know, blood pressure taken in the barbershop and everything. And, uh, you know, at least they had the information and then they could do something about it if they exactly. want. Exactly. Exactly. I think as we think more and more, and we're doing another study here in Dallas where we're actually speaking to families um, in dyads. So uh, a partner, maybe it may not be a, a husband wife partner, but it can be a, a parent and a child or just two friends who really support each other. And we're looking at what relationship they have with each other and how they think of healthcare. How can they support each other and being more successful in diet and exercise? and making sure they take their medicines. Um, It's an important part of how we live together and how we can support each other to really be healthier. Absolutely. That is really uh, good to hear because I've often felt that uh, a lot of times guys will come in to see me and I say, okay, so what brings you? My wife told me to come or my girlfriend (laughs) told me to come. (laughs) I love that. I love that story because when they tell me that, the first thing I say is I ask them more about that relationship. What do you do? Who cooks at home? You know, what, who's, who's doing what? Because everybody's got a different dynamic happening. And when we talk about nutrition and, and lifestyle, it is so important to have both people involved because they support each other in doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it does matter. I love asking those questions of people. 
<laughs> so, you know, it, just, you know, you said that, that women have that estrogen. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're seeing some women go through menopause earlier and that, I guess, puts them at greater risk for heart disease and yes. things that if they go through menopause in their early 40s instead yeah. of maybe waiting until 50, you know, of course, yeah. they have nothing to do about it, you know, with it. But, right. you know, what's the thought of process on that? Yeah, uh, we are seeing women go through menopause at earlier ages. Um, you know, the questions of whether or not uh, estrogen supplementation is an advantage uh, mm-hmm. in, with respect to protecting you from cardiovascular events is is a, still a question mark uh, mm-hmm. as to whether or not there's real value. I, I think there's certainly a value if you are having estrogen withdrawal symptoms that are debilitating and, and decrease your quality of life. But whether the benefits outweigh the risk is still not exactly clear. And so my approach um, with patients is uh, really to focus on the other ways that they might balance out their risk is getting them to eat healthy, getting them to exercise, um, thinking about and And this year, as of uh, September of last um, uh, of 2022, the American Heart Association has added sleep. Mm-hmm. To the to life simple eight. I think that's so important because we mm-hmm. underestimate the effect of getting good rest and getting enough rest. So um, importantly, is are you sleeping? You know, depending on your age, you need seven to nine hours of sleep every single day, and it's not enough to just wait to the weekend to get it. The other part of the sleep is um, is it good quality sleep? I can't tell you the number of patients who come to me whose blood pressures are uncontrolled. And when I talk to them about their sleep habits, they're snoring, they don't breathe well. And if the spouse is there, they will tell them that they can't sleep because their spouse (laughs) isn't sleeping. And and so I send them for sleep studies and find that they have sleep apnea, which is treatable, first of all. And secondly, it is a way to treat your blood pressure, ha-ha, and lower your cardiovascular risk without necessarily adding a medication and people feel better and they live longer. And, and really importantly is that having sleep apnea is an increased risk for sudden cardiac death. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing. And so um, addressing that is, is really important. And I think it's an important part of the overall cardiovascular risk that we can do something about. Absolutely. And I, I think about so many times I'll ask patients, you know, do you snore or anything like that? Yeah. And what I hear is, well, I never heard myself, but I'm always so sad. <laughs> yes, right. You're not listening, but your, your spouse, you know, whoever's in the room, they can't sleep because because you're not sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm really glad you brought that up. That that is something that we can help you with, and is and you know that it does increase your you know your problems and your chances of of dying earlier uh, and everything. And it's something that we can do something about. And wearing that CPAP machine is not that bad. And they have all new types of things that they can do. Yes, yeah, there are lots of other ways to treat it, and it's worth your while to do it. Uh, I think people don't even realize how bad they feel or how tired they are until they actually fix the problem and realize, wow, I had no idea that that was why my back hurts. That's why my neck hurts all the time. That's why I can't read anything because mm-hmm. I'm just too sleepy um, to do it. And I'm, or, or even edgy, you know, your, your attitude is bad when you're tired. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, you talked about sleep being one of the major things that, you know, people need to look at. You know, uh, could you mention people who work nights? Uh, uh, what does that do right. uh, to their sleep and, you know, messing up of the circadian rhythm yeah. and all of that? How is that yeah. affect? Yeah, it, it's not great, honestly. Um, if you think about how our bodies are designed is we have a physiologic clock and the clock is based on, uh, the, the real clock of night and day. And in the mornings, um, in order for us to wake up, our circadian rhythm suggests that cortisol levels go up and other hormones that basically get you ready for the day. When you don't sleep, you disturb that. And there's also the effect of just the light that you know, really supports that normal sleep pattern. For people who sleep, who work at night and sleep during the day, that is throwing the cycle entirely off. Um, but if you do that every day, there are ways that you can actually protect yourself by making your, you know, your sleep pattern sleeping really in a dark room as opposed to trying to sleep, you know, out in the light where everything else is going on and then giving yourself the same amount of sleep that you get at night you would get during the day. Mm -hmm. It's, it's even tougher, however, for people who are flipping back and forth. Oh, my goodness. Who are, who are having, you know, night shift this week and next week they're on day shift. Those individuals have an even tougher time because your body has to really try and catch up. And the, the whole goal is, you know, some of our sleep experts would say, yes, you can catch up on some sleep, um, but you can't restore the cycle entirely mm -hmm. by changing so frequently. So the, ideally, nighttime is for sleeping, daytime is for being awake. But if you do the opposite cycle, it's better to stay longer periods on the cycle rather than flipping it back and forth if you have the opportunity. And then finally, if you don't, which some of us do not, is that you got to make sure you get enough sleep. You got to really get the hours in um, completely and solidly. Okay. Now, I think one of the other things that the American Heart Association has said that it's the quality of the food that you eat also that is really, really important yeah. and that people who eat a lot of processed food mm -hmm. can, you know, have problems and they may not live, uh, tw well, they may shorten their life by 20 years or whatever. So could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's very interesting. Um, the Southern diet, and that is the oh. diet that is <laughs> most um, associated culturally with African-Americans, wherever you live, that is um, a part of, you know, who we are and who I, we identify. And we love that. On the other hand, there are lots of that Southern diet that are killing us. Um, but when we've looked at it in studies, we found that that diet is the largest mediator in determining the difference between blood pressures in blacks and whites um, and, and in men, for both men and, and women. And th that diet includes a lot of fried foods, a lot of processed meats, a lot of added fats, high dairy fat, um, sugary sweetened iced tea, um, <laughs> breads, all the things that we should not be eating on a regular basis. And um, importantly is the processed foods have so much salt in it because that's the way food is preserved. And so if it can stay on the shelf for weeks and months at a time, you probably shouldn't eat it. <laughs> Just think of it that way. <laughs> it's probably not too healthy for you because there's a reason why it lasts that long. The other af uh, aspect of it is you have to think about what makes us buy food because that's what marketing food is all about. We buy it for taste. And unfortunately, the American diet in total, regardless of what your cultural background is, 
has too much salt in it. And restaurants are, you know, really fighting each other to get you to buy theirs. And so it's a salt war to add more for more taste. And uh, they don't really have to tell you that because if it's prepared already, you just get what you get. It's tough for some things, a la French fries from a fast food restaurant. It's hard for them to serve it to you without salt. That's the way they prepare it and prepare it. I mean, they may say we're not going to add extra salt, but they've dumped it into a, a, a salty basin with other fries that have been there. And so it's very hard to pull the salt out of some things. And so you have to choose carefully. You have to really think about what am I eating and how much of uh, the salt is, is already in the diet um, it, because it's not just how much you add at the table with the salt shaker. And obviously, we want to be careful about that. Um, and so to understand how much salt. So I tell patients 2,000 milligrams, 2 grams. And so people look at me and say, I don't even know what that means because that is not how we measure anything. Take out, Take out your hand. And make a little cup with your hand and look at the very smallest part in the middle of your palm. That's how much you can have. And you can't fill it all the way up. It's just a, it's just a small amount. And, and so in, in that vein, as you think about what that is, how much salt that is, um, you should think about, well, gosh, that isn't a whole lot overall. There, I mean, we need some salt, but not a whole lot on an everyday basis. And we have to just really think about it more carefully. Well, let me reintroduce our guest today. We are so very pleased to have at our microphones today, Dr. Shauna Nesbitt. She is a professor of medicine, uh, Department of, of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas at Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. She is also the medical director of the hypertension clinic at Parkland Hospital. And I guess when she doesn't sleep, she's also the inaugural vice president and chief institutional opportunity officer. In addition, she is a world-renowned specialist on hypertension and has done many pivotal studies about hypertension. Now, Dr. Nesbitt, what should someone typically look for when they are being worked up for hypertension? Because it varies. I have people who come to me and I'm thinking, you know, what was done? And you try to get the record and it really doesn't show very much was done. What do you do? Yeah. So I start with the conversation is, is mm-hmm. tell, tell me when is the first time anyone ever told you that your blood pressure was high and what number was that that they said? And sometimes people don't know because unfortunately, we're not always forthcoming to patients with numbers. But you, you want to know that because the length of time that the blood pressure has been high is telling for what you need to be um, thinking about. For instance, if someone says I have had high blood pressure since I was a teenager, I start thinking about did you have something that you were born with, like a, an abnormal kidney or a missing kidney for some um, that might contribute to this? Do you have some other genetic forms of hypertension? If someone says that I just developed elevated blood pressure within the last two years, and um, if it's a woman and they had a baby not long before that, had high blood pressure during the pregnancy, again, that's another factor to consider to start looking at, you know, the effect of preeclampsia on women and hypertension following. And so I, I think about secondary causes of hypertension for every single patient I see. 
I don't need to do the workup for every single patient, but I do need to think about it because if I don't think about it, I am going to miss the opportunity to do something that is deliberately going to change that blood pressure trajectory for the rest of their lives. Um, and I may be able actually to do something that in some ways cures and or treats it more effectively. And so I look at their potassium and electrolytes, looking for low potassium and thinking about hyperaldosteronism and hormones that elevate blood pressure. I look at their urine to make sure, you know, do they have protein in their urine? Um, and the protein in their urine is a sign that there might have some uh, kidney problems and insufficiency. I always listen to their, do their physical exam, a very important part of this assessment, listening to to heart and lungs, checking the pulses in all extremities, because if the pulses are not accurate um, or not equal on either side of your body, it may mean that you have blood vessels that are formed inappropriately, and that may contribute to the blood pressure, and that's something that can be fixed. I always look in their eyes, which is not a popular thing amongst my trainees, but I think we should do it. It helps us to understand, you know, it's the only place we can really see blood vessels. Um, and that gives you an idea of really the length of time that uh, someone has been exposed and the body's response to that. Um, an EKG is an important part and plus or minus an echo, depending on the individual patient. Not everybody needs that, but there are individuals, depending on how they present to you um, and their age, that might actually need that um, to help round out the evaluation. Um, and then finally, in labs, uh, you want a, what's called a comprehensive electrolyte panel with a creatinine level, and a creatinine is a measure, measure of kidney function um, as well as thyroid function. Um, I always look at um, um, their cholesterol levels. They don't, they don't increase blood pressure, but there are such is there such a tight relationship between elevated cholesterol and elevated blood pressure? Again, no symptoms related, but very important for coronary heart disease and for stroke that I always do lipids at the time that I actually assess them for hypertension as well to start with. Okay. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that your patients should have their own blood pressure monitors at home? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> <laughs> so much so that uh, for several years, I, I gave family members blood pressure cuffs um, for Christmas gifts, and they asked me to stop. But I think <laughs> that <laughs> I think it's helpful to have the cuff at home because uh, you live most of your life not in the doctor's office. That's where the most important information is going to come from. And it's a gift that the whole family can use. You can all use the same cuff for the most part, as long as you're close to the same size. Children might need a small cuff, but Adults mostly need now large adult cuffs to fit their arms. And so getting them to do blood pressures does two things. One is that it provides information for what's happening outside of the doctor's office. Two is that it engages the patient in their own health destiny. And I believe that is one of the most important parts of developing a healthier lifestyle is that the patient needs to own it mm. because we can only do so much that it's really not our job. It's, it is a job between the two of us. It's a relationship between doctor and patient to help you to live a healthy life. But if the patient is not engaged in it, 
it will never work. And so home blood pressure really helps you to figure that out, helps you to understand something called white coat hypertension, which many people suffer from, um, and just to decide to make the right decision about, you know, what medications they need or, or perhaps don't need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we find that someone does have white coat hypertension, we definitely treat those numbers that they bring in, not the ones that they get here in the office. Exactly. Exactly. It saves people a lot of pain and suffering um, if they don't really need medication. Uh, I'm not in favor of giving them what they don't need. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Nesbitt, believe it or not, we're down to our last three minutes and we have not talked about everything we intended to talk about. Oh, my So what I'd like to, uh, you know, I always ask my guests, you know, if you could encapsulate, you know, what are your words of wisdom? If there are things that you want our listening uh, people to listen to, to hear, you know, what is the message you want them to get? So if you can give us that a couple of minutes. I will certainly do that. So first and foremost is that your health is your wealth. Take it seriously. It matters. Nothing else in your whole life is more important than that. Your blood pressure is a sign, A, that you can know. It is knowable and it changes on the regular, but you knowing is the first part of being able to control it. Second is that when you talk to your doctor, have a conversation that you walk away and you understand. Don't leave until you understand exactly what's happening. What are the labs? What do they mean? What is the blood pressure? What level are we going for? And also is um, take your medicine every day. Every day you need to take your medicine. This is not something that goes away like an infection. This is a condition that will be with you lifelong. In some cases, you can you know, change lifestyles, lose weight, other things that might affect it. But in, in most cases, it's a lifelong condition and you need to treat it that way. Doing that assures you of having, we can't say that it makes things perfect, but it certainly can improve the quality of your life. And uh, that's what we care about most is the quality of our life. We want it to be as good as we can possibly make it because it matters to us. It matters to your family. They need you and we need you. Absolutely. And I I like what you're saying about the quality lifestyle is about lifestyle. How you live your life is so important. It's so mad. It's so wonderful. Vita, thank you so much for inviting me. I'll always come if you ask me. Oh, well, listen, I will be calling you back. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, we have been so very happy, pleased and treated to Dr. Shana Nesbitt, she is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas at Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, where she is also the medical director of the Hypertension Clinic at Parkland Hospital, where she is also the inaugural vice president and chief institutional opportunity officer. And she's still doing pivotal studies that we make our decisions about how we take care of our patients. Dr. Nesbitt, you are a treasure and I thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. You are so welcome. Thank you so much and thank you to the audience. Thank you. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. 
It's a matter of your health. It's brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System. Find It's a Matter of Your Health podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to visit our website at www.drblandradio.com for past episodes, blogs, and more.